Well, last Sunday, we launched our fall series, which we've entitled Ecclesia, Rediscovering Spirit-Formed Community. And uh, we talked a little bit about Ecclesia last week, and just simply, it's a New Testament word for church that Jesus used, and we see in the book of Acts, as the church is talked about there. The church, we said, is a community of spirit-formed followers of Jesus who are participating together to build the kingdom of God, to live the kingdom of God, and to fulfill Jesus' mandate to make disciples. We said the church is a community that's filled with the Spirit, led by the Spirit, empowered by the Spirit, and formed by the Spirit. The church in the book of Acts is an excellent model for us of what Spirit-formed community looks like. And so over the course of the fall, we're going to be considering some of these characteristics or priorities or evidences, whatever you might want to call them, of a spirit-formed church that we see in the book of Acts. The first priority characteristic that we considered last week was Christ-centered teaching. And basically we said in a spirit-formed community, the teaching is Christ-centered and is accompanied by miraculous spirit-empowered acts. And we talked about Jesus being mighty in word and deed. Today, we're going to consider the second priority or characteristic, and that's fellowship. Now, from our earliest years, from when we're really little, we were likely taught that it is important for us to share with others. It's important for us to share. And for the most part, I want you to know that I'm okay with sharing. For the most part. But there's some times that I struggle with sharing. And maybe you can relate to this. You want anything to eat? No, I'm not hungry. Are you sure? Yeah, I'm, I'm full. You know what I'm saying? Some of you really know what I'm saying. Now, fellowship focuses on the relational aspect of being a community of Christ followers. And so what we'll be considering today is this. In a spirit-formed community, our relationship with Jesus and our love for one another is demonstrated by selfless personal sacrifice to meet the needs of others. Now, because we know the word fellowship can be easily misunderstood, it's important for us to understand exactly what is it that Luke is talking about when he's talking about fellowship. And so to do that, I want us to talk about, begin by talking about how we sometimes view fellowship and how that is limited and then how Luke describes it from a biblical perspective in the goal of helping us become a spirit-formed community that really identifies, understands, and demonstrates the characteristic of fellowship in our midst. Our scripture today was read Acts 4.32 to 5 verse 11. Thank you, Solomon, for leading that. 
He didn't quit the church, did he? He's not, he's not here, so I just want to make sure. But uh, I'm glad that uh, he was able to do that for us this morning. So let's begin today by looking at a contemporary understanding of fellowship. When we say the word fellowship, there are likely a lot of ideas that come to mind. Pastor Lindsay mentioned this morning that on October the 6th, there's a fall barbecue. And so we think of that as fellowship. If we have a potluck, it's fellowship, a church social. If, if we have coffee after the service, if, you know, if we invite people to come into our homes and we share hospitality with them, we, we call that fellowship. Even hanging out with people after the service to the point where I have to turn off the lights and tell you to go home. It happens every Sunday. People over here. <laughs> it's all right. Sorry, not sorry. These are very good practices that help build relationships that are necessary to create a sense of belonging, a sense of being known, a sense of being accepted in the community. There are three defining points within the contemporary understanding of fellowship that I want to identify. First is you're a part of a group. You, you identify with a particular group of people. And so it might be that you're athletic and, and you're on a sports team. Or you work in a certain place with other people. Or your kids are involved in an activity and you go to those events on a very frequent ongoing basis. It might be that you're in a band or it could be a church. You're a part of a group. The second is because you are a part of a group, you share common interests. And so, you know, if you're on a sports team, it might be because you like soccer and everybody else on the team likes soccer. Or you're trained as an engineer. That's why you work where you do. Or you're a, you know, you're a group of parents and all of you sit on the sidelines and, 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 and are rude to the referees together because your kids are involved. Or you love music. That's why you're in the band. Or... You go to church because you share a common faith and lifestyle. And so you're a part of a group because you share common interests. And thirdly, because of that, you have, shared, you have formed partnerships. And so people in the group have things in common. They work together to accomplish a goal. And so it might be winning the league or, and the trophy. It might be completing a project that you're working on together. It might be providing exercise and activities for your children so they, they learn to grow up to not be like you. Or it could be making a difference in the world. These are reasons we forge these partnerships. I think most of us would agree that these characteristics are necessary within the context of the church. They're very important. They're very necessary. It's important to be a part of a group, that it's just not you. It's important that you share a common faith and mission. It's important to work together to contribute to seeing success in the bigger picture. Now, my observation of the church in general is that we have in many cases confined our understanding of biblical fellowship to these three areas, and the result is we're limiting the true essence of community. While these things are good, they are taken, if that's where it ends, it is limiting to the biblical understanding. You see, the church can be a place that is friendly 
And I really hope that when you come to EPC, that's one of the first things that you would observe is this is a friendly place. It's welcoming. It's comfortable to be here. I don't feel out of place. I felt very invited in, very comfortable. But the truth is, we can be relational. We can, we, we can be friendly, rather, but not be relational. We can be welcoming, but not be authentic. We can be these things and not be deeply connected to each other. And so what I'm trying to say is that we can experience these three things, which are very important, but still not experience authentic biblical community. And so the world, when we look at the world around us, the world demonstrates these three in many areas. The world values these three in many areas. So what then sets biblical fellowship apart from these things, which are important, but somehow don't quite get there? So let's take a look at a, whoops, a bi- biblical fellowship. In Acts... The word that Luke uses for fellowship, and if you've been around church before, you've probably heard this. In fact, there are many churches that are called this. Koinonia. Koinonia. It's a word that expresses unity and harmony and partnership. Now, a simple definition of this deep relational identity, a simple definition would be harmony created by a shared purpose. I have that on the screen. But the truth is, this sounds a lot like the three things that we just discussed in the previous section. It sounds like koinonia is exactly what we just talked about. But Luke does not just use the word fellowship in the English or koinonia in the Greek. He gives us examples to help us grasp the full extent, the full extension of this incredible word and what it means in a spirit-formed community. In Acts chapter 2, verses 44 to 45, we have these amazing two verses. It says, all the believers were together, had everything in common, and they sold their property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. In fact, we read this morning that no one was in need because of what they did. For Luke, in his writings, fellowship is being a part of a group, is sharing common interests, is forging partnerships to accomplish a common goal. But it also includes taking responsibility for and ownership of each other. And so Luke shows us that in a spirit-formed community, our relationship with Jesus and our love for one another is demonstrated by selfless sacrifice to meet the needs of others in the community. That selfless personal sacrifice was demonstrated in the sharing of personal property and possessions to help those who were in need, who were struggling, who had less than others in the community. 
And so Luke gives us a window in these verses into koinonia by providing for us. He doesn't just make the statement, but he immediately follows it up by giving us two examples, a good example and a bad example, a positive example and a negative example. And that's one thing I love about when Luke writes in Acts. He's not pretending that this is a perfect church. He doesn't hesitate to show us their flaws. And so he starts with a positive example. And the positive example is Barnabas. We're first introduced to Barnabas in Acts chapter 4. And we're told that he's a good man. We're told that he's filled with the Holy Spirit and faith. And we're told that many have been saved. They become followers of Jesus because of his life. That's a pretty good testimony. I think that's a sermon that I would love the reality of to be preached at every sermon, at at every funeral. A good person, full of the spirit and faith, and many became followers of Jesus because of him. Now Barnabas' real name was Joseph. And he was given the name Barnabas by the apostles, we're told, and it means son of encouragement. Now, when son of is used in scripture, it's a reflection of a person's character. And he was given the name Barnabas because he demonstrated great encouragement in his life towards others. We're told he's a Levite, born and raised a Jew from the tribe of Levi, priestly tribe of Israel. We're also told he was from Cyprus. And now he's living in Jerusalem and is part of the church community. As we read the New Testament, we see that he's an important contributor to the church's expansion all the way to Rome. Now, it's important to understand that the living conditions for many in the early church, for the early followers of Jesus in Jerusalem, were very difficult because of great persecution. The Jewish religious leaders We're not happy that these uneducated people were preaching about Jesus. And so by killing Jesus, they believed that they had put an end to any belief that Jesus is the Messiah. We've killed him. Let's just move on. And so here we have this problem. The apostles are preaching. And not only are they preaching, they're preaching the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. And this is creating problems for the religious leaders. Not only were they preaching about Jesus, but now they're healing people. Because as we said last week, now they're powerful in word and deed. And they're healing people. And the Holy Spirit is moving and miracles are happening and they don't like it. And so they called them in and they said, we'd like you to stop preaching about Jesus. We'd like you to stop working miracles. And they wouldn't do it. And so there's a great persecution We're told that many of the believers in Jerusalem were taken from their homes in the middle of the night. They're imprisoned, they're beaten, and some of them were even killed for their faith. The church in Jerusalem consisted primarily of Jewish believers who had accepted that Jesus was the long-awaited Messiah of Israel. And so by declaring their belief in Jesus as Messiah, all of a sudden, many of them became disadvantaged. Many of them, their families rejected them because they were seen as these radicals 
who are stepping outside of this, you know, the consistency of faith to this radical fringe movement. Some of them lost their jobs. As we've talked about other times in the past, most employment amongst poorer people was family-oriented. If your dad was a farmer, you were a farmer. Your whole family worked the farm. If your dad was a fisherman, you were a fisherman, and everybody worked in the fishing industry. Well, all of a sudden, if you're alienated from your family because of your religious beliefs, not only did you lose your family, you lost your job. You lost your income. And then on top of that, there were sanctions imposed on some of these followers of Jesus that they weren't able to experience and purchase and have and enjoy some of the normal needs of life because they were being punished for their radical beliefs. The result was the believers in Jerusalem were facing tough economic times as punishment for being followers of Jesus. From the impact of persecution and poverty, in the midst of all of this, the Holy Spirit created this incredible community that resulted in the ultimate example of biblical fellowship, koinonia. We're told they're of one mind and soul. They are unified in their thinking, their purpose, their love for one another. And because of the desire, the dire needs in the church, this godly community took responsibility for each other. Those with resources shared with those who were in need. And the result, no one was in need. Barnabas sold his field, brought the proceeds to the apostles to help support those in need. There's no indication that Barnabas was wealthy. As a Levite, there were restrictions on owning property and wealth. Why he owned this field, we don't know, but it's likely all he had. There's no any indication at any other point in the New Testament, which Barnabas shows up many times in the New Testament story, that Barnabas had wealth or resources. It just seems like he was just an average person who happened to own a piece of land. And he simply took what he had, sold it, and gave the proceeds so that those in the community that he was a part of, this community that the Spirit was forming in Jerusalem, they could be cared for. Those who were struggling could be looked after. What a great example. And then we get to our negative example. From there, Luke immediately goes in to the negative example of Ananias and Sapphira. Shifts his focus away from Barnabas. So these two are in the church. <clears throat> They're all observing the great generosity demonstrated by Barnabas and obviously others in the community. They saw the value in doing it. They saw the praise that was attributed to it. And so they want some attention. They want some acclaim themselves. And so they too sold a piece of property. But they had a little meeting and they decided to keep back a portion of the proceeds for themselves. And they thought, this is a great plan. We could keep some of the proceeds of the land, uh, you know, from the sale. And then we could give a portion to the church. And then we will have money and, and we'll get the praise too. It's a win-win situation. We'll have some money and we'll also be credited for what we give. And so they brought the money. And they laid it at the apostles' feet, pretending to give the full amount. 
It's interesting that the offerings were laid at the apostles' feet. I mean, why not just put them in the offering plate? Why not give it to the treasurer? To kneel at one's feet was considered the ultimate humiliation, surrender, and reverence in this culture. When people brought their gifts to God, they laid them at the apostles' feet. The apostles were seen as God's representatives in front of them, and so laying their gifts at the apostles' feet was like laying them directly at God's feet. Now, it's important to note that Ananias and Sapphira's sin was not greed. Sometimes we read this and, or we hear it preached and it's preached from the perspective that they were greedy. They wanted too much for themselves. But their sin was not greed. Their sin was deceit. Their sin was deceit. Their actions were premeditated and deliberate to deceive. Their desire was to pretend that something different was happening than was really happening. Now, I want us to note that God never asked them to sell their field. He didn't, the Holy Spirit didn't convict them and say, hey, you know, we want you to do this. God didn't tell them what portion to bring. God didn't say sell it. God didn't say you have to bring it all. He didn't. But they were so motivated by recognition, by approval, and by deceit. Deceit is serious because it destroys koinonia. It destroys community. It destroys fellowship. They were not just deceiving the leadership when they brought the money. Their sin was harming the community as a whole. Koinonia is at risk. Spirit-formed community is at risk. Fellowship is at risk because sin is functioning in the community. And their impending deaths were a sign of the importance the Holy Spirit placed on community, on koinonia, on fellowship. This is how important it is that such a beautiful, spirit-formed reality, how important it is that when sin enters to destroy it, this is how serious God takes it. So what? Well, as I look at this passage today, there are four insights that I would like to consider from our text. The first is sin. Folks, sin destroys community. It doesn't matter what your community is. Sin destroys community. Whether your community is your marriage or your family or your church, sin destroys community because it takes the focus off of Jesus off of the followers of Jesus and places it on the individual who is sinning. Sin destroys fellowship. Sin destroys koinonia because it's selfish. Sin destroys unity 
because it's selfish. It's self-centered. It's self-serving. And so destroying fellowship, destroying koinonia, destroying the spirit-formed unity is a serious matter with God. It matters to God, and we see that in our scripture. Because there is no such thing as a sin that only affects the person. I think it was our previous Prime Minister Trudeau who once said, we don't want to be in the bedrooms of our people. That what people do in the privacy of their homes is no one's business. But the Bible says no one sins alone. That the sins behind the closed door of the bedroom in the home reaches beyond the bedroom door. There is no such thing that only, that of sin that only affects the person. No one sins alone. The impact of sin reaches our spouses. When one spouse sins, it affects the other. It affects our children. Our sin affects our families. Our sin affects our jobs. It affects our friendships. It affects our church community. And so we see a good example of this when we even read the Old Testament. It's time to conquer Jericho. Joshua has led the Israelites in. God has promised victory and finally the land is accessible. And God says to Joshua, this is what you need to tell people. When Jericho is, con is conquered, no one is to take the spoil from Jericho. Nothing. Nothing is to be taken. And of course, all of a sudden, we realize there's a problem in the camp, in the community, because one person named Achan decided, what can it hurt? What's the big deal if I take a little bit of the spoil out of all that there is and I bury it under the floor of my tent? I mean, what can go wrong? Well, I'll tell you what went wrong. Israeli soldiers died in battle. Because of his sin. His family was negatively impacted because of his sin. They suffered and paid the consequences because of his deceit. Because the truth is, no one sins alone. No one sins alone. And so we confront sin in the community of faith. We confront sin in the church because we want to restore the one who is sinning. We are about the business of restoring people. And if we are going to restore people, we must hold sin accountable. Now, because of sin, some people are drowning. They may not even realize they're drowning, but they are drowning because of sin. And holding them accountable is the equivalent of throwing them a lifeline. You are drowning in sin. We do not want you to be destroyed by your sin. We do not want the impact that comes from sin. So we're throwing you a lifeline. We're holding you accountable in hopes that you will confess and repent and be restored in community. But sadly, too often... People are too proud. Their hearts are too hard. 
and they choose to drown in their sin over admitting that they need rescue. That's what we're dealing with here. And let me say this to us. Failing to hold people accountable. If we decide that we should not hold people accountable, we should just leave it. It's private. It's personal. Let me tell you, that is one of the most selfish acts you will ever participate in. It is selfish. It is selfish. Because it's motivated by fear and it's motivated by pride and it's motivated by being uncomfortable. And it's wrong. Jesus said, it is the truth that sets us free. Not family cover-ups. Not sweeping things under the rug. Not justifying someone's sinful behavior. The truth. It's the truth that sets us free. And let me tell you, this is just my personal observation, not supported by any empirical data or research. My own personal observation is that people who are living lives of deceit are often the most hypocritical in the community of faith. Because while they are living lives of deceit, they place such a high spiritual expectation and demands on others in the community that most of us could never live up to, while on the other hand, they are having very little expectation of themselves. Deceit is a serious expression of sin that destroys fellowship. It destroys koinonia. That destroys the church community. Folks, if we are going to experience spirit-formed community, we need to be prepared to, first of all, be held accountable, and secondly, to hold others accountable. Because in koinonia, in spirit-formed community, People who are drowning in sin matter and our number one goal is not discipline or excommunication, it's restoration. It's restoration. Sin. Secondly, care. In the church community in Acts, we see a group of followers of Jesus that loved each other so much that they took care of each other. John Stott, in his book, The Living Church, I love this, he says, the Holy Spirit gives his people a tender social conscience. Have you ever wonder if the church should be involved in social justice and issues? All you have to do is look in the book of Acts. The Holy Spirit gives his people a tender social conscience. Because our Savior is generous, we who are his followers are also generous. Now, there's a big difference in caring about people and caring for people. And you've heard me talk about this, and I'm just going to keep riding that horse for a few more years. You see, you can sincerely care about people, but never be moved to taking action. 
I mean, I could stand up here today and I could show you pictures and I could talk to you about the fact that 28,000 children will die today from hunger-related realities. And I can show you the picture. And you're going to sit there and you might, wow, that's so sad. That really troubles me. That hurts me to see that. I wish that wasn't the case. I really care about those kids. And then walk out of here and do nothing about it. Jennifer could come up here and tell you all about human trafficking in our neighborhood, in our part of the world, along the QEW, and how girls as young as 12, 13, or even younger than that, are, are, are tricked into it, are pulled into it, and trapped, and what's happening to them, and what needs to happen, and we can sit there and our hearts can be breaking because we care about these girls but go home and never do anything about it. Folks, we do it all the time. I could stand up here and preach this amazing, let's pretend for a minute, an amazing sermon on giving. I can build the theological from Genesis to Revelation of the, of the generous heart of God and what he expects of our people. And we're sitting there and we say, that's true. We need to be giving and pouring our resources and stop spending so much. We can do that, but then we leave and we go home and we eat out for lunch on the way home after dropping two bucks in the offering. The reality is there is a difference in caring about and caring for. Caring for people requires practical action. We pray for people because we care about them. We ask how people are doing because we care about them. But caring for people also causes us to take practical, tangible steps to help people. Giving of our time, our finances, sharing our vehicle. I mean, when I say someone needs a ride to church, my God is like saying, the dentist is going to extract 12 teeth from the top of your mouth at the end of the service. That is the most inconvenient thing in the world, to stop one of the two vehicles my family's bringing to church today long enough to pick somebody up. Listening. Not having all the answers, not giving advice, just Listening. And sometimes it's just presence, being there. Someone just needs someone to be with. Nothing said, just to be there. Now, caring for people will involve some level of personal sacrifice. Giving up something of yourself. Giving up something of yourself. Yes, even in the midst of the crappiest season you've ever been in. Giving something of yourself to others in the community. Pope Francis said this. You pray for the hungry. Then you feed the hungry. That's how prayer works. Hmm. Those are good words. Koinonia. Fellowship. Is prayer lived out in practical everyday application by caring for people not just about them thirdly focus 
I only have about 12, I think, these. At the foundation of koinonia is the idea of unity, oneness, harmony, that is created because of what we all have in common. Now, there's a lot that we don't have in common in this community at EPC. There's a lot we don't have in common. We don't have our upbringings in common. We are all brought up in different places, with different parents, different circumstances and realities. Some of us had painful childhoods, some of us had good childhoods, some grew up in Ontario, some grew up in British Columbia. You know, our upbringings are different. We don't have that in common. Social status. We're not all on the same social status. Some people have less than others, some have more. We don't have the same social status. We're not all of the same ethnicity. We come from different places, background, skin color, education. Some of us didn't go to drop, finish high school. Some might have a PhD. Most of us find ourselves somewhere in between. We don't have the same level of education. We haven't had the same experiences. Some of us experience things others haven't, vice versa. We don't have the same training. We don't have the same health. Some of you have two really good knees. Some of you don't have any good knees. All four of your knees don't work. It's you and your husband, none of you. Your knees don't work. We're at different levels of our health. We're struggling with different things. We have different realities in our families that we're coming to grips with. Some of you have different talents than others. Some of us don't have talents at all, or it seems at times. When you look at this community, you can look and say, the truth is, you know, there's a lot we don't have in common. We're very different. But the one thing that we do all have in common as followers of Jesus in this spirit-formed community is that Jesus Christ is the Lord of our lives. That's what brings all of us from our different backgrounds and educations and social status and ethnicity and, and so on. That's what brings us in this room as this diverse, eclectic group is the fact that we all love Jesus. And this is the only thing that makes spirit form community possible. He's the focus. Now I say this to say I believe we spend far too much energy focusing on how our differences and not enough energy focusing on what we have in common. Human nature. Focus on what, how we're different. Don't focus on what we have in common. EPC exists because of our collective focus on Jesus. Nothing else, nothing else would have brought this diverse group of people together in this place this morning. Nothing would have brought this and made it happen. This would not be possible without Jesus. And so the Holy Spirit takes our diversity and brings us together into the beautiful image of the body of Christ. It's incredible. Folks, diversity 
is the evidence that koinonia is happening. You know, there's some things in our Pentecostal history that I'm not necessarily proud of, that I don't bring that up at social functions. But there's some things that I am. And I am proud of the fact that at a day when blacks and whites didn't share the same water fountain, our founder was black. In the day and age where women were fighting for the right to vote and be respected, they were leading our organization. In a day and age where young people were not considered to have any contribution, young people were at the core of what we were doing. Diversity is in our DNA. It's our history. It's, it's, we've always been that way, open to whoever. And it's a sign of spirit-formed community that koinonia is happening when there's diversity in the body of Christ. Fourthly, and finally, loyalty. Now, we live in a time when there, and you know this, if not, this may be news for some of you and you may never come back because, but there are a variety of church options out there. You may have thought this was the only option and you've been stuck here all these years. <laughs> I'm telling you the truth this morning. There are a lot of options available for people. And so if you bore of a particular church, if you encounter relational problems with leadership or other people in the church, if it doesn't, become enough about you people just move down the road now let me say as a qualifier I understand that there are times that we legitimately need to change churches because of theological reasons or philosophical reasons or geographical reasons there are reasons that are I'm not talking about that so don't misunderstand me Church attendance in our country is in significant decline. It's in significant decline. And as church attendance is plummeting in our country, so is loyalty among those who are attending our churches. And I suspect that these two may in some ways be connected. My mother-in-law recently attended an event that was being hosted uh, at a particular local church. I mean, you know, when you go into a local church, right? If you go into the foyer, I don't really do it, but Jen does it a lot. She wants to see, like, what's on their bulletin board, what they're handing out, what it looks like, what they're doing. For me, it's like, you know what? I can barely keep up with what I'm doing. I don't, wanna, I don't want the pressure to know what someone else is doing. And some of you are very helpful to let me know what other places are doing, too. I don't know how you'd know that, but you're helpful with that. So thank you for that. If you were loyal, you wouldn't know. <laughs> and so she's, she's looking around in the foyer, you know, kind of snooping through the stuff, and she, and she becomes aware of something that this church calls their loyalty program. They have a loyalty program. <laughs> this is so ridiculous, I can hardly tell the story. <laughs> if you attend 10 times... Your name goes in for a draw for a prize. Oh, sorry. They have a card that can be stamped. Starbucks has stars. McDonald's has a little sticker on the side of the cup. Right? 
PC Optimum has points. This church has a loyalty program. You get your card stamped. Go to the information center. Someone there, Susan, will stamp your card. Ten times in, it goes in the prize. And you could win a pencil. (laughs) Probably something more expensive. If I'm trying to bribe you to be loyal, I'm probably going to offer you something to make it worth your while. You know, it's not often that I can say this, but I was speechless. I was. In a spirit-formed community, the people live out a koinonia that demonstrates a passionate loyalty to Jesus, a passionate loyalty to each other, and a passionate loyalty for the community as a whole. What have we come to when we have to bribe people for their loyalty? We bribe people all the time. You can wear this. We'll, we'll provide this beverage for you. I, one church I know has an express service. Don't get any ideas. It's not happening. You can be in and out in 30 minutes. I'm not even finished my introduction in 30 minutes. <laughs> Loyalty to the community is critical to fellowship and koinonia. And as much as that example is ridiculous, I believe it's something that many of us have to wrestle through. Loyalty to our community. Now, you're going to think less of me right now. But I want you to know that only two times in 53 years have I ever gone to church while on vacation. And only because I had a kid at the time who wanted it, and I went and she wanted to go back. So I did it for my kid. And people think I'm unspiritual. Oh, you must want to visit other churches. No, I don't. I don't care how big they are. I don't care how popular they are. I'm just a stranger in the crowd. That's not my community. I mean, if I was living in Fort Lauderdale for six months, I'd find a community because that's a long time. This is my community. I'm on vacation to get away from you. (laughs) I don't need another community. I need to be drinking Starbucks on the beach on Sunday morning thinking about where you are and where I am. Some of you may never get over this. <laughs> Loyalty to the community is important and is not to be mandated or guilted or, or required, folks. If we're missing from the community... When you're missing from this community, it matters. I want you to know it matters. It really does. Because when someone is missing from the community, it impacts the koinonia. It does. So choose a community. Be great if you pick this one. Maybe you're thinking that over now. Give yourself to that community. Stand by that community in good times and bad. Listen, in this church's history, there's been some amazing times and there's been some challenging times, but there are people who are in this building every Sunday that weathered all of it. And they're still here. 
because they understand what it means to stick with a community in good times and bad. They understand. Raise your families in that community. Financially support that community. Serve in that community. Serve through that community. And be ferociously, ferociously loyal to that community. A spirit-formed community is filled with diverse people who are loyal to Jesus, who are loyal to each other, and are loyal to the community as a whole. If you ever get the opportunity to encounter me in a moment where I suspect the value of this community is in jeopardy, you will see a side of me you won't like very much. Because I love this community too much to let anything harm it. Anything harm it. I'm loyal to this community. And I know you are too. Oh, I'm done. Tyler, come on up. I need a drink. You guys have no idea what's in this bottle. It's really bad tap water. In a spirit-formed community, our relationship with Jesus and our love for one another is demonstrated by selfless, personal sacrifice to meet the needs of others. So folks, let's hold sin accountable. Let's care about people, not just for people. Let's focus on what brings us together, what we have in common, not what pushes us apart. And let's be loyal to the community that God has placed us in, that we identify with, and stick to it, and give everything we have to it. And let's build the kingdom of God together here.